Thank you for joining us for Time in the Chapel. Each week we eagerly try to discover what God has been saying to us since time began and even further back than that. Sometimes it's right on the surface. Sometimes we have to dive a little bit deeper, but either way we do our best, lean not on our own understanding, in all our ways acknowledge Him and expect that He will direct our paths. So grab your Bible, prepare your hearts and minds, hit the pause button long enough to pray for the help of the Holy Spirit, and then join me as we open up the treasures of God's Word. One of the ancient world's most famous philosophers once said, nothing endures like change. The philosopher's name was Heraclitus, and he was very famous, but he was not known for bringing sunshine and happiness to those around him. In fact, he was often called the weeping philosopher. Now, that notwithstanding, and despite being somewhat gloomy, there is truth in his statement, nothing endures like change. The statement, nothing endures like change, I believe, rings with a biting sarcasm that's worthy of the topic. Change can be unpleasant, often unwelcome, and almost always resisted. Most of us don't like change, but unfortunately, life is itself change in action. That is what I believe Heraclitus meant. Things all around us are in constant flux. And let's face it, most change is negative. Change usually means deterioration. Change often means unreliability. What someone is like today may not be what they're like tomorrow. Many a relationship has turned sour because of change. We don't want to, but we have to accept that change is a dominant force in our lives. It is unsettling at best frightening at worse. But we have hope. We serve God, who once said of himself, For I am the Lord, I change not. Therefore ye sons of Jacob are not consumed. Now, most of you are probably annoyed that I do this all the time, but I want to look at the Hebrew word that the King James translates into the English word change. It is in the Hebrew shana. And shana, according to the Strong's Hebrew and Greek dictionary, means to fold or to duplicate, for I am the Lord, I fold not, I duplicate not, I change not. God is declaring in Malachi 3.6 that there is no need for him to redo anything. God doesn't need to start over. Everything that is happening, everything that exists, is existing and happening as he intends it to. All that is going on around us, whether we like it or not, whether we judge it to be incorrect or incongruous, doesn't matter. It is what God intended it. Because he said, for I am the Lord, I change not. God has not rewritten anything. God has not rewritten his plan. God is staying his own course. Now, Strong's Hebrew Dictionary also says that Shana means to alter, to repeat, to double. For I double not, I alter not, I repeat not. 
Malachi 3.6. God says he has no intention of altering, repeating, or redoing anything that has occurred. You know, you can trust someone like that. God doesn't stoop to our level. He lifts us up to his. You know, you can trust someone like that. The thing that should scare you the most about our earthly leaders is that most of them are politicians. You see, politicians compromise. Now, don't get me wrong. I know that's their job. They have to compromise. But you don't want a God who compromises. You see, every compromise leaves at least one party with less than what they had before. And almost every compromise leaves everyone with less than what they had before. No compromise, in other words, has ever increased the position of the contending parties. The nature of compromise means you have to change your position in order to reach an agreement, right? Now, I'm not arguing, once again, that this isn't necessary in politics. It is necessary. We live in a society that values democracy, that every voice should be heard. That's the way our current governmental structure works. I'm not going to give a value judgment on that, but it is in God's way, not in God's government. God is not going to give you a voice in his government. But that is the way earthly government is currently. Earthly government is run by politicians whose job it is to make as many people happy as possible, at least 51%, so they can get elected again. And that's why I tell my Christian friends as often as they'll listen to me, don't look to your politicians to mirror your values. It's not going to happen. If it is, then they're not doing their job because you're not the only one that voted for them. By their very nature, politicians must appease at least the majority of the population. And you cannot do that unless you compromise, unless you compromise on your values. You know, all those promises that your favorite politician made before being elected, they're not going to be able to fulfill them all. First of all, they told them to you just because they wanted you to vote for them. But secondly, every promise nowadays is to crush the next guy to undo whatever the last guy did. It's not possible. They must change. They must compromise. Because that's the way our government works. But that's not how God works. Some people want to tell you that God had to give up something in order to save us. Wrong. The Bible tells us that Jesus, listen to me, that Jesus was the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. That means God's plan has never changed. Now, you can't ask me to explain it any more than that because I simply don't know. It doesn't make sense to me, but it doesn't have to. As long as God is in charge, God is not expecting me to discuss the validity of his plan. God is not intending that I understand everything that he is expecting to do. 
And that's okay. I trust that God is smarter than I am. And frankly, I like it that way. Now, Samantha was not like this. But I know lots of little kids incessantly ask questions when driving to a particular location, perhaps an amusement park, perhaps to grandma's house. Dad, are we there yet? Dad, are we there yet? Dad, how come you turned left instead of right? Dad, Dad, go through that red light. It's only, it's just, it just changed. Hurry up. I want to get to grandma's. Dad doesn't pay any attention. Dad shouldn't pay any attention because the child in the back seat is unaware of the route to grandma's. And dad would be a fool to follow the directions of someone who doesn't know what they're talking about. For I am the Lord, I change not. Therefore, ye sons of Jacob are not consumed. Here in Malachi, though it doesn't sound like it, God is actually comforting the people. For I am the Lord, I change not. Therefore, ye sons of Jacob are not consumed. The sons of Jacob, another name for the nation of Israel, were constantly breaking God's commands. They were constantly unfaithful. The sons of Jacob, and by the way, us to this very day, are forever turning away from the covenants of God. Well, God is saying here that despite our changiness, despite our unfaithfulness, he will remain faithful because he doesn't need to change. The simple fact that the lamb was indeed slain from the foundation of the world tells us that God never intended the law to be our means of justification. He gave us the law for another reason, which we will not get into. But the lamb was slain from the foundation of the world, meaning before anything existed, before any sin existed, the lamb was slain. Because the slain lamb was to be the means of justification. That's always been his plan. That's why he can say, I am the Lord, I change not, therefore ye sons of Jacob are not consumed. The sons of God are not going to be consumed because they have been covered. They are covered. And they have been covered since the foundation of the world. And God does not plan to change that, thank God. Before the world even began, God's full justification plan was in effect. He had always intended to dispense grace. That's the comforting part. Here in Malachi, God is saying, look, Despite your lack of fidelity, despite your constant changing, I won't change. I have a plan. I am prepared for you to change. I know that's your nature. For I am the Lord, I change not. Therefore, ye sons of Jacob are not consumed. That is the amazing thing about God's faithfulness. He gives it to us even though we are anything but faithful to him. We have a very difficult time understanding that. All of our relationships are based on what you can do for me. Most of them, I should say. There are some good relationships out there that are not like that. Catherine loves me, in my opinion, unconditionally. It doesn't matter that I'm sometimes annoying to her. I sometimes leave my socks on the floor. That I sometimes burn dinner. It doesn't matter to her. She loves me anyways. That's not the typical relationship. The typical relationship is, I'll love you as long as you make me feel good. I'll love you as long as you stay pretty. I love you. I'll love you as long as you still, you continue to make me feel wanted. Me, 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 I, I, I. That's not God. 
because he is the Lord, he changes not, therefore ye sons of Jacob are not consumed. By all rights, we should be consumed. We should be destroyed. We are unable to stand before God unprotected. Now, you may think you're the nicest guy that you know, but God sees things differently. I tell you all the time, do not pray for God to give you what you got coming. Never be so deluded to ask God to give you what's coming to you because believe me, you don't want that. In our own earthly relationships, we've all disappointed or are disappointing to the ones we love or disappointed by, I to say, the ones we love. And sometimes to the point that we lose those relationships forever. But that isn't the way God is. Despite ourselves, God remains faithful to us. Despite our failures toward Him. And if you're honest, you'll admit that those failures are numerous and egregious. Despite those numerous and egregious failures, God remains Himself. This is where the cynical modern world scoffs at our God. This is where the world thinks our God is foolish. The way of the world says that you're a chump to remain faithful to the unfaithful. Forgiveness is not an option. Forgiveness is a sign of weakness. Punishment, not forgiveness, is the proper response to failure. There are lots of so-called religions on this planet. Society tells us to, that we all have to get along despite our differences. And you know what? I'm okay with that. Not only am I a Christian, but I'm an American in, in that order, by the way. And I believe sincerely that everyone has a right to believe in what they want to believe. But some people take that noble notion to a point that it was never intended to go. Some people claim that the reason for religious tolerance is based on the premise that we all serve the same God. Wrong. Now, let me repeat, as far as I'm concerned, you can serve whomever or whatever you want, but we don't all worship the same God. The God I serve has told me through his word what kind of God he is. And that's where we find out, his word is what I mean, we find out that he has spent the entire existence of mankind trying to restore a broken relationship. The God I serve has striven to remain faithful despite my failure. The God that I serve does not expect out of me what he knows I cannot deliver. Not all religions are like that. Very few religions, and I'm using air quotes, can you see me? Not, there's no other religion that preaches grace and mercy and love from the God. Now, the, the other religions say be merciful and graceful to each other so that God is not unmerciful to you. Our God says, I know you're not capable of this. I expect it out of you, of course. But I know you're not going to be able to fulfill it. And here's the backup plan. I change not. Therefore, ye sons of Jacob are not consumed. You make me crazy. I, 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 I want to take you out. And he said that many times before, but he won't. God wanted to replace those foolish Israelites in the desert that had fashioned a golden calf. Moses stepped in. By the way, Moses was being a 
type of Christ there, stepping between God and a sinning population. God is teaching us that although we fail Him, He changes not, therefore we're not consumed. I'll say it again, by all rights, our constant unfaithfulness towards God's commandments should lead to our consumption, our destruction. But here God is saying that wasn't His plan for His children. His plan from the beginning did not involve consuming, but rather it involves saving. Now, does that mean that everyone is going to be saved? No, you're not listening. Therefore, ye sons of Jacob are not consumed. If you enter into a relationship with God where he becomes your father, then Malachi 3.6 applies to you. His plan from the beginning was that he was going to save you as long as you accept the terms. Verse 5, the setup verse, I call it, to the one that we're now studying, has as its subject those that have not entered into that arrangement, that agreement of grace. Let's read it. This is what happens to those that are not the sons of Jacob. You ready? And I will come near to you to judgment, and I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers and against the adulterers and against the false swearers and against those that oppress the hireling in his wages, the widow and the fatherless, and that turn aside the stranger from his right and fear not me, saith the Lord of hosts. That is what happens to those that are not the sons of Jacob. That plan hasn't changed either. He's always said that. Those that are not the sons of Jacob. And you know what I mean by that. I'm not saying the Jews. I'm not saying the Americans. I'm not saying the Lithuanians. I'm saying those that have decided to accept God's terms of entering into his family. Those that refuse to do that. Those that do not accept God's offer. I will come near to you to judgment, and I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers and against the adulterers and against false swearers, against those that oppress the hireling in his wages, the widow and the fatherless, and that turn aside the stranger from his right. Well, I don't do any of that. Oh, I forgot. And fear not me, saith the Lord of hosts. If you do not regard and respect God as the Lord of hosts, he's going to come near you in judgment. He will be a swift witness against you. You will be judged according to your works. Those that are under his protection will receive mercy, even if they themselves change. He will not change, and he will save them according to plan. Now, God doesn't change because he doesn't need to. When something changes, listen to me, it changes because either it is incomplete or imperfect. Let me say that again. When something changes, it changes because it is either incomplete or imperfect. If something is incomplete, for example, change is necessary to bring it to its completion. I always use the example of spring, spring in the northeastern United States. The flower buds, the leaf buds, they appear on the trees, but they all change eventually because in the bud state, they are incomplete. They have not come to the full purpose of their existence, so they must change. If they do not change, they remain incomplete. Change is necessary to bring about completion. Similarly, if something is imperfect, 
change is necessary to bring that something to its intended perfection, right? An imperfect thing is most likely at odds with what's around it because imperfection implies disharmony with the ideal and therefore change is called for. I, in high school, had a Spanish teacher who was very hard of hearing. And he used to tell us, because he's been hard of hearing all his life, his other senses have been heightened. You've heard that before. The other senses change because there's an imperfection. So change is necessary to make sure that that human being is able to function in the environment because in the condition they're in, there is disharmony. Now, that's not always possible. So when it is possible, change will occur. Change is necessary if you are either incomplete or imperfect, sometimes both. Well, even the youngest, most inexperienced Sunday school student knows that God is neither incomplete nor perfect, nor, nor imperfect. God is neither incomplete nor imperfect. He is complete and he is perfect. No one can deny that God is complete and perfect. One of the hardest things to imagine is the concept of God before time. God has always existed. He has always been himself. Even though this is so difficult to conceive of, before the heavens and the earth, there was only God. He was self-sufficient and self-satisfied. To this very moment and on into eternity, he will remain self-sufficient and self-satisfied. God has not changed. He is not changing. He will never change. Okay, John, geez, here you go again, beating a subject to death. We get it. God doesn't change. So what? Why is that so important to me? It's important because you are called to faith. There's not a single human being, in my opinion, that's ever avoided putting their faith in something of this earth. When you sat down on your couch to listen to this program, you had the faith that that couch was going to hold you. Well, eventually, that couch will not hold anyone. It will change to the point that it will be unreliable. You have been called to faith in God. And for you to be able to properly do that, Far above any other thing you've put your faith in, you must realize that you can safely put your trust there. Everyone seeks a place of security. Everyone. It's a human need. If you, and I know you do, seek a place where you can be secure forever, then you need to know this because there is only one place that you can be secure forever. You see, you can only count unconditionally, listen to me, on an unchanging object. Yesterday, Catherine and I were walking through the Princeton University Art Museum, a beautiful place to be. 
and I love ancient and medieval European art. And there's scores and scores of beautiful artwork there from that period, and, and other periods, of course. Well, I was looking at some old wooden statues that are just beautiful, just absolutely beautiful. The workmanship, the beauty, the the way they capture moods and all of those things that I wish I could do. But for some reason, as I was looking at this, at least a few wooden statues, I noticed there were little worm holes in the wood. Little holes in these beautiful pieces of art. Little tiny holes made by worms that were eating the wood. And I know that if these beautiful pieces of art had not been discovered and then put in the magnificent Princeton University Art Museum, they'd be dust by now. They would have been dust 200 years ago because they're made from changing materials. You can't trust anything that changes, and everything changes except for God. All objects other than God that become a foci or a focus of trust will fail. You may, may be able to find strength in your father, your dad, but he won't be there forever. Your old coach from high school may be your mentor, but she's not going to live forever. Your buddy from high school, he may say, dude, I'll always be there for you. But he won't, will he? Even the traditional marriage vows acknowledge that one day we will part. Then you may say, well, fine. If I can't trust in all of those things, then I'll trust in myself. Good luck with that. Outside of God, all things change. We are in an environment of change. The Grand Canyon hasn't always been grand, nor will it always be grand. The Great Salt Lake won't always be great. But the Almighty will always be mighty. God has called us to trust. God has said that we can and should trust Him. And He's right. We can trust Him and we should trust Him because He is all there is that is eternally reliable. Only God can claim total faithfulness. Now, I know that this sounds like religious philosophy. It sounds like Aquinas and Augustine and Luther and Calvin sitting in a room just banting about intellectualisms. But it's more than that. It's fact. It's truth. Yesterday, Catherine said, why don't we were talking about Princeton Theological Seminary. She said, why don't you just go to Princeton Theological Seminary and become a theologian? I don't want to be a theologian. I don't want to just banter around philosophies. I want you to get truth. Deuteronomy 7, 9. Know therefore that the Lord thy God, he is God, the faithful God which keepeth covenant and mercy with them that love him and keep his commandments to a thousand generations. Now the context of this verse, again, Deuteronomy 7, 9, is in part the fact that the enemies 
of God and even his own people worshipped false gods. Deuteronomy 7 verse 9 is God providing a contrast for the children of Israel. The false gods that they had worshipped are unreliable. They're changeable. They are unfaithful because they are based on the things of this earth, just like those beautiful, lovely wooden statues that I saw in Princeton University Art Museum. Earlier in Deuteronomy, our God described their gods like this. Chapter 4, verse 28, And there ye shall serve God, Serve gods, the work of men's hands, wood and stone, which neither see, nor hear, nor eat, nor smell. Those gods cannot be counted on unconditionally. And I have proof of it because I saw statues as older, older than that, that were deteriorating. Mankind has worshipped wood and stone, and gold, and silver, and flesh. And all of those things pass away. By nature, the created is less than the creator. The created cannot sustain and lift up the Creator. Those gods are unworthy of worship because they are created. Only our God can be relied upon. Let's read Deuteronomy 7, 9 again. Know therefore that the Lord thy God, He is God, the faithful God. That word faithful translates the Hebrew word Ahman. Ahman. That should sound familiar. Ahman is related to the Hebrew word from which we get our oft-recited word Amen. Now, this didn't occur too much when I was a kid in the Catholic Church, but when I started attending evangelical churches especially in the southern United States, I would very often hear someone in the congregation exclaim, Amen! They would say, Amen! Kind of startled me a couple of times when I first heard it. And I will say sometimes annoyed me. That was just me. They would say, Amen! Loudly. Certainly loud enough for everyone to realize they said that. But they would say amen whenever the pastor, preacher, or teacher said something of a deep and reliable truth. Jesus is my Savior. Amen. God is a good God. Amen. Amen is another way of saying, right you are, my good man. What you have just spoken is quite true and we can rely upon it. But it takes a lot longer to say. Well, our God is the Amon God, the reliable God, the well-spoken God, the true God. He is the Amen God. He is true and reliable. In the King James Version, He is the faithful God. Now, when you think about it, there is tremendous comfort in that thought. The unchanging God, the reliable God, the Amman God, the one that speaks true, the one that can be relied upon. When Samantha was born, Catherine and I committed ourselves to giving her a stable childhood. From the very beginning, she had a schedule. There was a set time for sleep. There was a set time for play. There was a set time for meals, snacks, bath. On and on it went. Now, some people would think, and 
thought, especially then. Oh, that's terrible. Are you raising a soldier or a child? Now, certainly, we aren't perfect parents by a long shot, but can I say this? Samantha never expressed worry about what was going to happen next. Samantha never felt neglected. To this day, I believe that she is a well-adjusted, grown adult now. Because we taught her that she can rely on us and can continue to rely on us. We wanted Samantha to know that we were reliable. So we remained constant. We remained unchanging. And I believe that Samantha is a peaceful person largely because of that. And as she grew older, we taught her that she can rely on God. And she understood that. That made sense to her. She had experienced reliability, unchangingness, people that were true to their word, honesty. So it was easy to describe God who's far above us. We told her that she can trust God like she trusted us, but by far greater degree. No need to stress about what comes next. God can be relied upon to fulfill his promise as provider. We were examples of that to her. That, by the way, is your job as a parent. Let's not get into that. 1 Kings 8.56 Blessed be the Lord that hath given rest unto his people Israel according to all that he promised. There hath not failed one word of all his good promise which he promised by the hand of Moses his servant. Now I don't normally preach. My job is teacher, but today I'm preaching. In fact, today I'm testifying. As they say in the old school churches. In my life, there hath not failed one word of all his good promise, which he promised by the hand of John Tomasi, his servant. I suspect if you looked at your life, you would probably say amen. Or if you prefer, right, you are a good, my good man. What you have just spoken is quite true, and we can rely on it if you have the time. God is and will forever be the Amon God, the faithful God. Let's read it again. Know therefore that the Lord thy God, he is God the faithful God. In the Hebrew, he is the Amon God. Listen to what the complete word study dictionary says about this very beautiful Hebrew word. It says the primary meaning of the Hebrew word aman is that of providing stability and confidence like a baby would find in the arms of a parent. Over and over again in God's book, he uses the beautiful, natural relationship that exists between parent and child as a reflection of the type of relationship he wants with us. Know therefore that the Lord thy God, he is God, the stable God, the God in whom we can have confidence, the God in whose arms we are as safe as a baby. Sometimes you want to weep when you hear things like that because the world is so opposite from that, isn't it? 
we think, oh, I just need to get to the end of the day and I'm going to have my double whiskey and everything's going to get much better. Today was so chaotic. I'm just going to sit down and have a gin and tonic and I'm going to take a couple of Ambien and I, I know I'm going to feel better. Then after a while, you have a couple more gin and tonics and a couple more Ambien, and then you don't feel so peaceful anymore. You kind of either feel groggy and tired or angry for no real reason. Because we're trying to feed chaos with chaos. Instead of trying to feed chaos with an Amon God. I'm not trying to preach against alcohol to you, although I believe you shouldn't drink. It's not good for you. But the point I'm trying to make is alcohol is man-made. It's a thing of this earth. It isn't going to help you against the chaos of the world. It just isn't. I'll just, you know what? I'll go running after work. That, that'll make me feel better. That will relax me. I'll feel so much better. Ever been out right running in the park and some sweet old couple standing in the lane there, the running lane, and you got to go, oh my God, I got to go around them. Or you have to go, you, eventually you're going to find a corner you're going to have to stop at wait for the light to change, get all frustrated because the cars are blocking the intersection. What good is that? Now you're more frustrated. I'm not preaching against jogging either. I think it's good for you. You should do that. You should exercise. But don't use it to make the chaos of the world go away because it isn't going to happen. Eventually, you're not going to be able to jog. One of the saddest pictures I have ever seen was a picture of Jack LaLanne sitting in a wheelchair a few months before he died. I loved Jack LaLanne. He was one of the first people on television to tout the benefits of exercise to a well-rounded life but it didn't last. Eventually, Jack LaLanne couldn't even get on his own feet. I don't know what his position was with God. It's between him and God. Hopefully, he put his faith in God. I suspect that he did. In its most basic form, the word aman reflects a sense of certainty and firmness. Remember, aman is the Hebrew word that gets translated into the English word faithfulness or faithful God. In its most basic form, that word reflects certainty and firmness. Listen to how the word is used in Isaiah 22, 23, and see if it doesn't help us in understanding the certainty of God. And I will fasten him as a nail in a sure place, and he shall be for a glorious throne to his father's house. Not the word that is translated sure, and I will fasten him as a nail in a sure place. That word sure is translating the Hebrew word aman. Now correct me if I'm wrong, but don't we only put nails in places we know will hold? Isn't that why we get that stud finder gadget from the hardware store? We're trying to find the sure place to put the nail. It would only make sense to nail things in firm, reliable, sure places. The sure place is a firm, certain place to fasten a peg. 
Your trust in an Amman God, a faithful God, a sure, certain God, is a well-placed trust that will remain firm and certain forever. Because he is unchanging, God can be trusted. Because he is the faithful God, God can be relied upon. Do you know how fortunate you are to have that? No one outside of God's children have this same certainty. I actually feel sorry for atheists because by their own admission, they only trust what they can see. They only have hope in what they can see. Therefore, outside of their sight and senses, they are without hope. If you don't have God to trust in, all that awaits you is uncertainty, decay, and eventual destruction. In fact, the only sure thing an atheist can count on is that they're going to die. That's pretty depressing. But we Christians, we have the unspeakable blessing of having a certain sure place for our trust. We should shout for joy for this. We should say with the sweet psalmist, Thy mercy, O Lord, is in the heavens, and thy faithfulness reacheth unto the clouds. God's faithfulness reaches the clouds. The idea here is that David is painting this idea that God's faithfulness, his fidelity to his word and his promises, and by implication us, reaches to where eternity begins. So when you look out to the horizon, everything is upward, right? There's nothing but space. That is how sure God's, that's how high God's faithfulness reaches. It means all of it. He can be trusted. Not the things of this earth, not our own intellect, not the so-called experts. Our trust is only secure, firm, and certain in the faithfulness of God. When things go bad, that's where we turn. Again, let's read from Psalm 36, this time verse 7. How excellent is thy loving kindness, O God. Therefore the children of men put their trust under the shadow of thy wings. Amen. Well said, David. We often remind you that Hebrew is a picture language. Its words are based on images that come to one's mind when they are read or spoken. Well, the original Hebrew word that gets translated into the English trust in Psalm 36, 7 calls to mind, it's the word chasa. The original Hebrew word is chasa. That's the word that is translated into the English word trust in Psalm 36, 7. And chasa is meant to call into the mind an image of fleeing. Now, not fleeing from fear, but fleeing to something in confidence. Strong's Dictionary says that this word means to flee for protection. A derivative of this word is used in Isaiah 4.6, where the prophet speaks of a refuge from a storm. Fleeing to the refuge of a storm. When we realize how excellent is God's loving kindness, we flee to him as our sure protector. We place our problems in his care. Even if we don't have any problems presently, don't know too many people in that position, but even if your life ha happens to be all smooth and calm, isn't it best to stay where you're most protected? It is best, no matter what situation, to place our full trust in the loving kindness of our faithful God. And that is what his word is trying to tell you. That is what 
Scripture is trying to tell you. Trust God. The story goes that Augustus' top lady, a preacher in Somerset, England, found himself in some nasty weather while walking through the Mendip Hills. Well, during the storm, preacher top lady found refuge in a gorge, and it's said that it was there and then that he penned the now famous hymn whose lyrics start out this way. Rock of ages, cleft for me, let me hide myself in thee. I can't think of any better way to define this Hebrew word from Psalm 36, verse 7, than to repeat. Rock of ages, cleft for me, let me hide myself in thee. There's another one of my favorites from church. It goes like this, Jesus is the rock in the weary land and a shelter in the time of storm. That is Amon God. That is the Hasa God. The sure place, the certain place, the place that doesn't change. The Apostle Paul declares, The Lord is faithful, who shall establish you and keep you from evil. Jesus, our Lord, can be trusted because he's a part of the Godhead. He's the same Godhead. He has the fullness of the Godhead bodily. It's his nature because it's God's nature to be faithful. It's in him. His faithfulness is there all the time. Yes, we have to look for it in faith, but that's only the activation thing. You know, electricity exists at the outlet, but it isn't useful until you turn on the switch. There's water in the reservoir, whether you believe it's there or not whether you turn on the faucet or not, but we're not going to derive any benefit from that water until we put our bucket up to that faucet and turn the handle. You can trust God only. What's the point of all this? We want you to know that there is a rock, a certainty, a sure place where you can put your trust. It isn't anything of this earth. It isn't money. It isn't friends. It isn't position. There is absolutely nothing wrong with those things if they hold the proper place in your life. God does want you to be happy. He's your father. He doesn't want you to be poor unless... There's a reason for that. And there are situations in God's word where poverty or other forms of discomfort have a use. Now, I'm not saying that God is always behind that sort of thing in your life, but I am telling you is that if you are in less than ideal circumstances, God has promised that he will be there with you. And we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to his purpose, Romans 8, 28. Now, that's not really a good translation. Scholars believe that the tenses of the verbs contained in that verse make the following a little more true to the original Greek. And we know that God enters into all things for good to them that love God, to them who are called according to his purpose. In the grand scheme of all of Scripture, this makes more sense. God will enter into your situation. He will bend the circumstances of your life to help you, to shape you, to train you so that you can become what he wants you to be. That's true happiness. And he can do it. He has the power. He has been saying all along he can do that, and he won't change. He can be trusted. 
If you haven't done so yet, turn to God. Accept His invitation. Accept His invitation to be in His family, to be a son of Jacob. And if you have done so already, renew your commitment to Him. Examine your life. Examine that you be in the faith. Either way, you will see that you have a relationship with the one you can trust. You will have a relationship with the faithful God. You've been listening to Time in the Chapel, a weekly program dedicated to bringing you in-depth biblical study. Join us again next time as we search scripture to learn more about God in your life and you in his plan. Time in the Chapel is a service of Chapel Ministries. Chapel Ministries is a non-denominational ministry with a mission to feed hungry souls. Please consider supporting this program financially. For more information, please visit our website at www.timeinthechapel.com or email us at info at timeinthechapel.com. Be sure to look for us on Facebook by searching for Chapel Ministries. Click follow to get all of the latest information.